us. Well, with all that, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 26. And our title tonight is Choose to Change, which really involves us, all of us, making a choice. We'll get to the choice. It might be toward the tail end. I'll give you a little hint. But we're going to see some choices, and I think, in our verses tonight. So Genesis 26, we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac, that would be his son, went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Well, for some of you, that likely rings a bell. Because if you were here during those chapters on Abraham... Abraham also interacted with a king called Abimelech. Remember that whole crazy, she's my sister story? That was Abimelech. This is another Abimelech. It kinda, it's not the same one. And, and here's what I didn't know even myself as I was studying this. Gerar is what they would call at the time, and you might remember this from history. It was what they called a city-state. So Abimelech is not a name. It's really more like a title. King, Prince, Abimelech. So there's multiple Abimelechs. So both of them met, I would say, an Abimelech. It's not the Abimelech, it's an Abimelech. So that's why you'll see that name more than once. Let's keep reading, verse 2. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not, very strongly, do not go down to Egypt. So apparently he's considering that, because God wouldn't have told him not to if he wasn't thinking about it. Live in the land where I tell you to live. In other words, stay put. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. Well, two weeks ago, when we talked about the search for a wife, when he went to find Rebecca, I think I told us that night that, as far as we know in Scripture, Isaac never left the promised land. Well, he's getting close right here because God tells him, do not go to Egypt for, I think, good reasons. Remember what happened when Abraham went to Egypt? He wasn't supposed to go. He didn't ask God. He ends up getting Hagar, and we know where that story ended up. Not a good area. So don't go do what your dad did is kind of what God is telling him. Let's keep reading. I only read half of three. Let's read the other half of three, and then um, verse four. It says, for to you and your descendants... So not only you, it's your descendants. I will give all these lands, and I will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give them all these lands, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, and I would add in parentheses, by Jesus. That is the true blessing. So the blessing is the same one Abraham got. God is just really paying it forward to Isaac, the son, and it's a land, a nation, which will be Israel eventually, and the promise of the whole world will be blessed by you through your descendants, which really means Jesus. Verse 5 is interesting, and I'll tell you why in a second, but let me read it first. Verse 5 says, and here's the why, Anna. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him. He kept my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. Well, if you were here, once again, as I taught through Genesis, I pointed out to us anyway, mistake after mistake after mistake that um, Abraham made, remember? But look what God says about him. He obeyed me. He did everything I told him to. 
He kept my commands, and he followed my instructions. Well, not by my calculations did he do that, but see, that doesn't matter, which brings up our first point if you're taking notes tonight. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what God thinks. God's opinion is what matters. Not mine, not yours. Ours are really irrelevant. God sees Abraham as being completely obedient, even if we don't. And let me read a verse. I'm not going to put it on screen, but back in Genesis 15, 6 is a good summary of that concept. Here's what 15, 6 says. Abram, back then he was Abram, not Abraham. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. So God saw Abram, or Abraham later, as being righteous, which really means he was in a right relationship with the Lord. Now, many people in our world right now, even they claim, I'm a believer. You know, if you ask them, do you believe in God? Yeah, I believe. Well, are you doing anything that would look like you believe? In other words, are you obeying God, following his commands? Are you in some kind of small group? Do you attend a weekly service that's teaching God's word? Are you obeying God's instruction manual for life? Well, no, but I believe. That really won't get you anywhere is what God's word says. In other words, they want God's promises. They don't want to be in that right relationship because there is a commitment of obedience that's involved. So what does that right relationship mean? I kind of give you one hint already. It's obedience. And, and by obedience, I mean a willful obedience. In other words, we want to obey. We want to please our Heavenly Father. Not because we have to, because in our heart we want to. That's a huge difference. And then we also have faith. And that faith would be trusting God completely with anything and everything in our life, 100%. All the good, all the bad, all the ugly, complete faith, 100%. That's how we end up in that right relationship. But back to verse 5, it says, God saw Abraham as being in complete obedience. He did everything I told him to, um, followed all my instructions. How could that be? Well, it's because of a term we hear sometime in Christianity called justification. And way back when we taught Romans, um, I was the one that taught that night where justification came up. So I want to kind of revisit it for a second because you'll sometimes hear people banter that term around, justify, justification, and maybe you don't quite know exactly what that means. So let's look at it on the screen together. This will make it crystal clear and real easy. God is the righteous judge. He, he never makes mistakes. He is righteous. So God is proclaiming to us in that verse that Abraham is righteous, but he proclaims the same thing about you and I. It's because of Jesus. Because of, if we believe in Christ, as that sentence says, even though we're still sinners, we are now righteous because of Jesus, as far as how God sees us. That's a blessing, is it not? Yes. God he doesn't just believe that we're righteous. He sees us as being sinless. He sees us as being righteous, even though we're still sinners. It's because we're in Christ, in Jesus. Jesus is our Lord, not just our Savior. We all like Savior, but if he's our Lord, in other words, we're following him to the best of our abilities, we're committed to obeying him to the best of our abilities and ask the Holy Spirit to help us when we fail, 
we are in that right relationship. But number three is maybe the best part of all. It doesn't excuse our sin. It doesn't ignore it. It doesn't definitely endorse it. But here's the real key. It changes how God sees us, sees our sin, sees you and me. He sees us differently because we're justified. And I'll tell you why in a second. Because really, in a way, something changed. When we became justified, something changed. So the question becomes, then what changed? Well, we changed, but sometimes we're a slow work in progress, aren't we? Something changed dramatically for us because our sin is not just forgiven, it's been erased. Erased. Like, you ever seen that commercial with the magic eraser that's on TV all the time right now? That's your sin. Next time you see that commercial, think about justification. That's your sin. It's been erased like it was never there. So if you're taking notes, here's another quick point already. Then we'll pause for a little bit in between points. Thanks to Jesus. Got to give the credit where credit's due. Thanks to Jesus, we're not just forgiven. It's like our sin never happened. Wow, exactly. Wow. Can you even imagine that? How can that be? Because here's the thing. We still remember our own sin, don't we? We shouldn't. Scripture says not to, but we're simple people. We do. God does not. To him, it never, ever ever happen because of Jesus' blood on the cross. It's not covered up. It's removed. It's gone. It's erased. And it's not magic. It's Holy Spirit erased. It's not a magic eraser. But that commercial can remind you, your sin, thanks to Jesus, does not exist. So if we remember it, by the way, where is it coming from? Who's whispering in your ear when you remember it? The enemy, exactly. So don't let the enemy deceive you. That's not of God. That's of the enemy. God sees it because you were justified. All you watching online, you're justified. It never happened. That's a wow moment, I would say. It's hard almost, because we're humans. Our brains don't comprehend that sometimes. We say we do. I can sit up here and tell you we do, but really we don't. That's a God thing. Like it truly never happened. Thanks to Jesus. Amen. Let's keep reading. Back to verse 6. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. Well, he didn't go to Egypt, but he really didn't go back to where he's supposed to be yet either. He's not back in what I would call the real promised land. At best, he's on the fringes of it. Um, He's in Philistine territory. That's what I mean by that. He's still in pagan Philistine territory. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. It's going to be a familiar story, by the way. It's going to sound like deja vu almost. When the men of that place, in other words, in Gerar, asked him about his wife, he said, look what he says. She's my sister. Does that sound familiar? And look at the reason, the same reason Abraham did it. Because he was afraid to say, she's my wife. He thought, the enemy put this idea in his head, by the way, The men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she's beautiful. OMG. What is he thinking? Did he not talk to his dad about this? Did he not hear the family history of this? She's my sister twice. Abraham did it twice. Here we go again. 
Maybe Abraham never admitted to it. Who knows? Maybe, you know, if, in the family circle, that's probably not a story you're going to be willingly telling about how you lied and told everybody you know, your wife was your sister. But he's clearly making the same mistakes as his father did. Which brings up a question we get as pastors sometimes. You know, people will ask us sometime about generational curses. You ever heard that term? Well, just so we're clear, because we're going to teach on it for a second. The Bible does not teach that people, especially New Testament people, are under what I would call a generational curse. And we'll look at a verse in a minute. But even in the Old Testament under the law, when it does mention punishing children for the parents' sin, it's really to a specific people, which is Israel or the Jews, and it's for a specific sin of making and worshiping and bowing down to idols. Let's look at the verse I'm talking about. It's out of Exodus. And by the way, this is the second commandment. I cut the first part off because it's about don't make idols, don't, don't make false idols. But if you do make one, look what it says. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And this is where sometimes people get this generational curse idea from. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents, but once again, it's, it's a specific sin of idol worship to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Another requirement. You have to hate God for that to happen. But look at the promise right behind it. I show love to a thousand generations. That's a generational blessing, not a curse, of those who love me and keep my commandments. So it was for a specific people, for a specific sin. We are no longer under that. But, there's always a but, don't you know? There can be a generational pattern. That's a difference. And the big difference is a pattern there's a way out of. If it's a repetitive behavior, in other words, maybe one of your parents was prone to some type of sin. We'll just say alcohol, for example. You were not under a curse of being an alcoholic. You may model what you see. You may be more prone to do certain things because your whole family did it for four generations. But the difference would be you're imitating or you're in a pattern of behavior. You're not under a curse of God that you can't get out of. Scripture says exactly the opposite. It says by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are no longer bound by sin. Those chains are broken. We are free from that nonsense. But you have to obey God's commands. Let the Holy Spirit live in you. He empowers you because you can't break those bonds on your own. It's not something we can just casually say, well, I'm just not going to do that. No, you need God. You need the Holy Spirit. You need to be in his will, in obedience to him then he will free you through the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's a big difference between generational curse, generational pattern. Does that make sense? Good. The good news is you're not under a curse. Neither am I. But we're still going to be on our A game. We've got to be careful we don't fall into the habit. And it may not be even something like a sin of alcohol or promiscuity. Maybe we sort of have an anger problem. I know Pastor Dave has taught about he had an anger problem. He just mentioned it um, last weekend when he talked about his kids because he, he saw that. If we see our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, if we remember them being angry, we might be angry a lot too. We learn that. We, we imitate. 
Those of you who have kids and grandkids, don't they imitate you about almost everything? They want to be like their parents and grandparents. That can be funny and good in a lot of ways. It can also be a negative if we're modeling negative behavior. And really, that's on us, not them. They're just kids. They don't know better. That's kind of something we have to watch, that we don't pass on bad habits to our children or anybody else's children, our neighbor's children, children in general. Let's keep moving. Verse 8. When Isaac had been there a long time, in other words, he's in Philistine territory. We don't know how long, but Scripture says a long time. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. Here we go again. Sounds like his dad's story. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. You've been lying. It's not your sister. Then look what he says next. It's like exactly what the other Abimelech said to Abraham. Why did you say she's my sister? Isaac answered, because I thought I might lose my life on the account of her. He was kind of in self-preservation mode. He's really being kind of selfish. He's trying to protect his own skin, throwing his wife up possibly to be taken away by some pagan king. But God, God intervened for Abraham. Remember that story? God protected Isaac and his wife, just like he did for Abraham and his wife. But here's the point you want to write down about what just happened. You know, he thought he had this thing all lied and figured out. Hidden sin. Hidden sin does not stay hidden. Scripture tells us what happens in darkness will be, it will be come to light. It may take a while, may take a minute. We don't know. Either way, it will be revealed just like his lie just was. It will eventually surface, and really when it surfaces, almost every instance it's way worse than if you just told the truth to start with. And either way, he sinned. He lied. He's in sin by lying about his wife. Look what Abimelech asked him next, verse 10. What is this you have done to us? One of, of the men might have well slept with your wife. That's what I mean by he protected himself. He put his wife out to possibly be taken home as a concubine. You would have brought guilt upon us. These are pagans, by the way. The pagans are rebuking Isaac. Verse 11, so Abimelech gave orders to all the people. Anyone who harms this man or his wife, he probably, I can just imagine, or his wife will surely be put to death. So even though Isaac appears not to have learned much from his dad's fiasco times two, Abimelech did. The other Abimelech must have told this one about it, and he's doing the same thing. You did this. You almost made us sin. You almost caused us to get in trouble. What have you done to us? But God intervenes. He tells the people, don't touch her. God protected Rebecca. And just like he, re he protected Sarah a couple of chapters ago. Well, now the blessing kicks in. Verse 12. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold. So a hundred times what he planted because the Lord blessed him. We just read about that blessing a few verses back. The man, Isaac, became very rich, and his wealth continued to grow until it became very wealthy. That will be a problem. 
the blessing is in action. He's becoming wealthy. He has a lot of possessions, a lot of flocks, a lot of herds, a lot of land, it sounds like. Because if I keep reading verse 14 and 15, it says, He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. Look what they do, though. Verse 15. All the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped them up and filled them with earth. So now we see the pagan tendencies coming out of the Philistines. Envy, jealousy, coveting, conflict. They don't like that he's successful. And they're going to try to get him back by wrecking his well. Um, Probably some of you in this room have a well, but if it breaks, you can call a repairman. You can get a new pump delivered. There's a guy you could call. In these days, that was a different story. To ruin your well was really to ruin your life. No water, no you. It's a big problem. And I try to think of a modern equivalency that we could maybe compare it to since we don't quite relate the well thing. The closest I could get, you might can think of one on your own, would be if I tried to cause one of you to go bankrupt. Not that I would do that, by the way. God is watching, but if I tried to cause bankruptcy, that would be like, in this case, stopping up your well. That's probably about as close as we could get. It was really bad. So this is not a, a casual thing, is my point. Look what happens next. Then the king calls him in, verse 16. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us. you got to get out of here. You have become too powerful. You're too rich, too many servants, too many herds. Get out of here. So Isaac moved away from there and he camped in the valley of Gerar where he settled. So he didn't go very far. I didn't put us up a map, but he only goes from the city of Gerar to the valley of Gerar. Doesn't sound very far, does it? Probably a little distance, but enough to get the herds some grazing space. But my real point is he's still in Philistine territory. He has not gone back to where he's supposed to be even yet. But he is going to get busy and try to work on what they've been wrecking. Verse 18 says, Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. So even though verse 18 is talking about wells... And like I said, probably some of us have wells, but it's not our livelihood. I think it's a, there's a spiritual kind of component that reminds us of some things. And, and here's what I came up with. Things in life will break down. Things including us, by the way. We break down, don't we? Yes. You're only old as you feel, though. Remember that. Things will eventually fall apart. Our stuff, but also me. We fall apart, too, don't we? And last but not least, these wells, I would kind of put them in the category of a good thing, a good work. Even a good work will eventually have to be redone. You know, a good example of that, years ago, some of you were here, we had older cameras, but they weren't HD. Remember those, some of you? We kind of had a campaign to raise funds for that, and a lot of you helped. It was a good thing. Our cameras were good, but they wore out. They became obsolete. There was no parts available. So even a good thing will occasionally have to be redone. If you guys keep coming on Wednesday night like you're doing so well, you're going to wear these seat covers off. We're going to have to redo these seat covers. But that would be a good problem, wouldn't it? 
Yes, it would. And the weekends were booming too, by the way. So even good works have to be redone. It's not really a negative. But verse 18 even really has a better spiritual application. Um, think about the well and water. What did Jesus say he was? Living water. Let's, let's think of these wells more as living water. And let's look at a verse. John 4, 14. This is Jesus. You know the verse. Whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, living water, welling up to eternal life. But now if we apply the living water idea to the wells that just got stopped up, there's kind of a warning for us, I think. Nobody maintained those wells. That's what happened to them. If we don't maintain our well, which is our faith in a way, our living water is our faith in Jesus, our well can dry up. It's natural to have kind of highs and lows in our spirituality, by the way. So don't beat yourself up and condemn yourself if you're feeling kind of spiritually at a low point. God will get you back up. But if we don't maintain it at all, and by the way, you're maintaining it right now and on the weekend, and you're in Bible studies, you're in small groups, you're maintaining your well by just being here and we're studying the word together. So yours aren't going to dry up, but don't miss next week. Just kidding. But look at the next one. The enemy's goal, what the enemy do? The enemy stopped up their well. He wants to stop up your well and my well. He wants to stop up our faith. He wants to make it a closed up dry hole that has no living water in it. That's the enemy's goal. But look at the last one, the good news for us. We, you're God's workers, I'm God's worker, we're all in this together, we're all equal, remember? God's workers, in our story, it was, it was Isaac and his servants, they reopened a closed well. We might be the one that reopens our friend's well. Maybe you have a family member, a friend who's really lost their faith. They've had a death in the family. They've been divorced. Their relationship has gone bad. Their, their finances are terrible. They've gone bankrupt even, we'll say. Their faith is at an all-time low, and it's almost stopped up. You might be the encouraging factor to encourage them, pray with them, redirect them back to God, and just tell them, God didn't forget about you. We, by prayer and the Holy Spirit, can help reopen our well, but also the wells of others. So don't miss that opportunity. Maybe, you, as I'm even saying that, some of you think about a friend whose faith is really down. Maybe God is using this analogy to prompt you to pray for them, call them, text them, message them, encourage them. That little text of encouragement might be what they need to reopen their well of faith. Back to our text, verse 19. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water. But the herders of Gerar quarreled with those of Isaac, and they argued, saying, This water is ours, even though his servants just dug it. So he named the well Esek, which means dispute, because they disputed with him about this well. So he moves on a little bit. Verse 21, they dug another well, but this well, the herders also quarreled over that one, so he named it Sitna. Sitna means opposition. So there's a well called dispute, well called opposition. I would say it's time to move away from those two, wouldn't you? 
But those two verses also have some spiritual application, I think. Look what, and we, we should see these people, these Philistines, these herders, they're in, in our story here, I think a picture of the enemies of God. Look what they're doing. They're in conflict with God's people. So the enemy wants to be in conflict with you because you're believers, you're on God's team. They're not. They want to be in conflict with you. Don't be surprised by that. It's just going to happen. Doesn't mean we conflict back, though, by the way. Just means they're in conflict with us. The enemies of God in this story, they're opposing God's work. They're trying to mess these wells up and argue and take what's not rightfully theirs. Another classic technique of the enemy, to oppose the work of the Lord. Last but not least, maybe the main one, the enemies of God do not want you or me to find or to have living water. If our wells are living water, because two of those wells, they found it, but they didn't want them to have it. They argued until they left and took it away. They took their living water in a way. The enemy wants to do the same thing to you. He does not want you to have living water. He wants to distract you. He wants to tell you God doesn't love you. He wants to condemn you. He wants to tell you you have a generational curse. He's trying to stop up your well. Don't let him. That's the enemy. God wants you to drink living water and drink it forever. Let's keep reading. So what does Isaac do? He's going to get out of there and move on. Verse 22, he moved on from there and he dug another well. This is the third one. This time it says no one quarreled over it. I guess two was enough for those guys. He named it Rehoboth, which means room. In other words, now we have plenty of room. And he said, now the Lord has given us room. So he gives credit to God. He's on the right track finally. And we will flourish in this land. So he's not doing two good things. He's giving God the glory, and he's believing in faith that we're going to flourish. So he's starting to trust God more and more, it looks like. He's finally coming out of this pattern of bad behavior his dad modeled. But notice, look what, had he, look what he had to do. He had to move away from the enemy, get out of there, move away to find freedom. So as we say that, my question for myself and for all of you, all of you watching online, is there something in your life you need to symbolically or physically move away from? In other words, is there a negative influence in your life that it's best you put some distance between you and that pagan thing? Maybe it's a close friend that doesn't believe. It's going to be a tough kind of thing to distance yourself. I'm not saying not to be friends with them, but you can't let even a friend's bad moral behavior corrupt yours. You can't. Maybe it's a different reason. Maybe there's something. So once again, don't ask me. Ask the Holy Spirit. God, is there something I need to move away from like they do in this story? And if we move away from it, I think God will provide like he did for Isaac. He gave him a different will, gave him space, and then gave him the faith to believe, I'm going to flourish. God wants you to flourish that same way. He wants me to flourish. But it may involve me or you moving away from some sort of bad influence. Finally, verse 23. Look what happens next. It's about time. From there he went back up to Beersheba. Finally, he goes back into the real promised land. 
And by the way, this is the southern edge of it, but he's finally there. Because in Scripture, all through the Bible, there's a phrase that says, from Dan to Beersheba, from Dan to Beersheba. It's in the Bible nine times, and that what it described is the borders of the promised land, kind of like top and bottom. And if any of you are going on that trip to Israel we've been promoting this year and or next year, you will go to Dan. There's a kind of a ruin there called Tel Dan, which just means the ruins of Dan. A few years back, I went to Israel. I went to Dan. So if you're on that trip, you will see what's in this story yourself with your own two eyes. If you don't get to see it, it's okay. We'll tell you all about it. It's the northern city of the kingdom. And it's right on the border, by the way, of Syria. You're way in the north part of Israel at that point. Dan to Beersheba. Isaac is now in Beersheba on the other end of the country. But look what God tells him in the next verse, 24. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God. I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid. Why is he saying that? Because obviously Isaac is afraid. For I am with you, here's the why, don't be afraid, because I'm with you, I will bless you, and I will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. God is kind of repeating that same promise we read in the first part of our chapter tonight. But Isaac's afraid, why is he afraid? Think about what just happened. They kicked him out of Gerar, they came against him, they were in conflict with him, and, and really, he's probably fearful they're going to attack him even though they called him powerful, he's in, he was in enemy territory. But God is trying to comfort him. He's trying to say, don't worry, I've got this. I'm passing down the full covenant I promised to Abraham. I'm promising the exact same covenant with you. It's a binding agreement I'll never break. He's trying to get him to not be afraid. Just, what he's really saying in common English, he's saying, trust me, I got this. Don't let the visual or the conflict scare you. I got this. So look what he does next, verse 25. Isaac built an altar there. This is Beersheba. Isaac built an altar there. He called on the name of the Lord there. He pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. So altars, tents, and wells. Oh, my. You're smart people. I wondered if anybody would get that. Altars, tents, and wells, oh my. The rest of you will get it later when you watch Weird of Oz. So, finally we see Isaac doing some good stuff. He apparently has modeled a few good behaviors. It's a good contrast between those bad behaviors. He called on the name of the Lord. In other words, he worshipped God. We worship God as we started our night tonight. He built an altar. We don't really build altars anymore, but I would encourage all of us, myself included, remember what God has done in your life. Remember it. That's why he built an altar. He wanted a visual memory. Hopefully, we don't need a visual. Our memory should be right here and right here. Remember what the Lord has done. And we start tonight praying by maybe some of you are challenged this week by some sort of obstacle, mountain, you know, hindrance. The way we get past those mountains sometimes is remember how God got you out of the last one. Remember what he did in your life in the past. Remember how he blessed you and just take faith he'll do it again. That's what Isaac is doing here. 
And last but not least, he pitched his tent. Any of you got tents in the parking lot? Yes, amen. Probably not. I think you're pulling my leg, Andrea. But my point is, we're, we're in a way doing the same thing. He pitched a tent to stay what, near what he thought where God, he thinks God is here. I'm pitching a tent. I'm staying near God. Symbolically, we're pitching our tent tonight by being here and studying his word. You are pitching a tent, whether you know it or not, in God's house by listening and studying this. So we are camping out with God right now, funny as that sounds. Our last main point, if you're taking notes, what we should do. This is a good memory. You can put this in on your refrigerator, maybe. We need to be worshiping God, not just at church, worshiping, praising, thanking him regularly, all day long, at least daily, hopefully multiple times a day. We want to remember what he already did for us, remember what he has done, but also have faith that he's going to do that again. And then we need to stay in his presence. And we really don't stay in his presence by being at church, by the way. This is a building. We stay in his presence by staying in his word. We hold his commands near and dear to our hearts. You know, the Pharisees had phylacteries where they tied them on their forehead. If you like, tie a Bible on your forehead and walk around, but it may not help you remember it much. You're much better off to read it. Read it and not just read it, apply it. Apply it to your daily life because this book has all the things we need. As I said earlier, it's our instruction manual for life. So worship, remember, and stay in his presence. Next verse, 26. Meanwhile, back to Abimelech, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his personal advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his forces. So he's got all his key big leaders with him. Isaac asked them, why have you come to me? You know, I got away from you like you told me. I've moved all the way back to Beersheba. Why have you come to me since you were hostile to me? Many translations, some of you may have a Bible that says that, say, since you hated me. It's really more than hostile. Why have you come here since you hate me? And you sent me away. So we kind of get an idea why he's afraid. Look what they answer in verse 28. We saw clearly, we didn't wonder, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, maybe they're afraid now. There ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you. A treaty that you will do us no harm, just as we did not harm you, but always treated you well and sent you away peacefully. Partially true, but remember they did say, don't touch his wife or we're going to kill whoever does. So that's at least partial, right? And they are pagans, so they're not really bound to our requirements like we are anyway. So they treat him at least fairly well. They just ran him off and stole his water. But we notice God is with you, and I'm going to finish that verse, and now you are blessed by the Lord. We see that God is with you. We see that God is blessing you. It's making us nervous is what they're not saying, but you can almost read between the lines and get that. They see it. They see God is with him. The question is, does anybody see God in us? When they see you and I, do they see God? 
Do they see God as not just blessing us? That might be easy. Do they see us behaving like Jesus to the best we can? That's the real question. These Philistines seem to see some of that, at least in Isaac. Maybe they notice the altar he built. Maybe they notice he's put his tent up to stay in God's place. Maybe they saw him worshiping the Lord. Hopefully the world sees that about you and I. But back to our story. Um, they're asking for a treaty. And now really I would say the ball is in Isaac's court. Does he have to do that? No. Because remember it says he's become powerful. This is a great opportunity on a silver platter to get revenge. He could have taken this opportunity. Does he? Let's read verse 30 and find out. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. They fellowshiped, so it's not revenge. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other, not to harm each other is what that infers. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they went away peacefully. Now, verse 32, which I'm not going to read, just says they later named this place Beersheba, but it was already called Beersheba by Abraham back a few chapters ago. He's just renaming it what his dad did. And in both cases, if you remember the Abraham story, Abraham made a treaty with that Abimelech too, the same place. Beersheba just really translates to well of the oath, well of the agreement, well of the oath not to harm each other. We're also going to skip 34 and 35, by the way, because that's more verses about Esau. Next week is all about Esau and Jacob, and there's some really good stuff. If you can be here, you might want to hear what Esau does and some crazy stuff again from Genesis. Just a little commercial for next week, by the way. But as we end tonight, that's why I'm stopping on purpose. I want to end on how they ended. They ended peacefully. They ended well. Isaac forgave the people that had treated him very poorly, and he made the choice. Remember, our title tonight, as I started, I told you, was Choose to Change. He's going to choose to be different. He could have taken revenge. He could have said, absolutely not, no agreement from me. I'm going to get you guys for what you did. I'm going to go throw dirt in all your wells. No, he chooses to end the conflict. I think it's a great reminder what does scripture tell you and me to do? Be different. Choose through the power of the Holy Spirit to be different. Because we can't be different on our own. That's impossible. We're just foolish, weak human people. God is who makes us different. And if the Holy Spirit's in us, he is who makes us different. It's not even us at all. It's him. He empowers us to be different, to look more like Jesus, to act more like Jesus, to speak like Jesus. But it's also a great verse, 1 Peter. Let's look at it. That challenges This is a challenge. Don't repay evil for evil, even when you feel like it. Feelings get you in trouble. Don't retaliate with insults when the world around you, people, insult you be different. Instead, here's what we should do. Pay them back with a blessing. More on that in a second. That is what God has called you to do. 
And if we do that, look at our, our result at the end. He, God, will grant you his blessing. Is that a hard one? It Amen, it's hard. That's super hard. When somebody's evil to us, don't be evil back. When they insult us, don't insult them back. Don't retaliate. And it goes further and even takes, you know, God raises the bar and more and says, not just that, pay them back with a blessing. It doesn't mean to financially bless them. It might. God may prompt some of you to do a financial blessing. I don't know. I would say in our story, the blessing was fellowship and forgiveness. Maybe the blessing the person may not even know about. Maybe the blessing is us forgiving them for some wrong they've done to us. It was a clear wrong. They're at fault. We're not arguing about that part. But God says, let that go. Bless them with fellowship and forgiveness, and I will bless you for it. So maybe our challenge is just to let some past hurt go. Even if we were the victim, even if somebody did us terribly wrong. It doesn't mean to become best friends with them, by the way. It doesn't mean even to restore that relationship like it was. It just means for me to not let it affect my life any longer, to let it go, where it's like, almost like justification. I have to, as best I can, but we can't because we're just people, act like it never happened. In other words, it no longer affects my life. If they're mad at me, that's on them, but as far as I am, I have let that go and moved on. And if we do that, God will bless us. But it takes the Holy Spirit. So maybe tonight there's people in this room, including me, who knows that I need to forgive somebody for something. God will prompt us. If it's us, he will tell you it's you. He will prompt you. The Holy Spirit's doing like this, giving you some rib shots. He will prompt you. You don't have to listen to me. Listen to the higher authority. Listen to the Holy Spirit. He will tell you if you need to let something go. Maybe it is more than a relationship. Maybe it's a financial thing. Maybe somebody has... Almost caused you to go bankrupt, ripped you off, scammed you. Let it go. Give it to God. Let him fix it. Let go of the past. That's our big challenge. So we're going to pray for that. But as I close, you can't do any what I just described if you don't know Jesus. You just can't. That's literally impossible almost. As a world-type person, if you don't hadn't truly been saved and put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus, I'm asking you to do something that's really almost not possible in human power. So if you need to maybe rededicate your life, maybe you used to follow, but you don't follow anymore. Maybe you're just here tonight because you want to get out of the rain for a minute. God brought you here for a reason. Maybe you're watching online. There's a number to call. Don't leave tonight without coming down. Let's talk about it. Let's pray about it. Rededicate your life. Or maybe it's your first time to ever give your heart to Jesus. I would love to pray with you about just, Lord, I need a new start. I want to follow you, commit to following your commands, and transform me to be more like you. So if that's you, come see me. For the rest of us, let's just pray that maybe if God prompts us, we would let something go in our past, whether it's anger, unforgiveness, a past hurt, whatever it is, ask God and see what he says. But let's pray. Lord, tonight we've learned a lot from 
Isaac and Abraham. Lord, good and bad, but we can learn a lot from bad mistakes where we don't make those same mistakes, Lord. But as we ended tonight, we saw Abraham and Isaac um, both, especially Isaac tonight, just let the past go and move on and just end the night in peaceful manner. So, Lord, maybe there's people tonight that have a thing in their past that's unforgiveness, it's, it's a burden, it's bothering them. I just pray, Lord, if anybody here has that, that issue, you would just help them to let that go, help them to forgive the person that wronged them, help them to put their trust, their hope, and their faith in you, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would break those bondages of unforgiveness. We need your help, Lord, and we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a good night, and see you this weekend.